Submission Coalition podcast number eight. This one's with Christian Hollywood Lowson, MMA fighter, Caesar Gracie Black Belt. A little biased on this one. He also happens to be our son. Uh, interview's a little awkward, but we got through it. Enjoy. All right, I'm get in back to back. <laughs> so, how's it going? It's, it's going as good as it can be. Hold in. So, kind of wanted to go ahead and do a, um, an episode of the podcast for Submission Coalition. We're testing this format out. So, we're using you as a guinea pig. How's it feel? To be a guinea pig? Yep. Yes. Kind of guinea piggy. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, it is recording audio or video as well. So, <laughs> yep. we're watching you eat your ramen. <laughs> right now. All right. Well, let's officially start. All right, so officially start. All right, so we are with Christian Lawson. Christian Lawson. Lawson, our son. <laughs> uh, <laughs> assistant instructor for Dark Wolf MMA, uh, MMA fighter, uh, wrestling coach. What other accolades can I give you, Christian? What did, um, <laughs> you said wrestling coach, MMA fighter. Yes riveting so far i know this is amazing <laughs> I, I'm, why are you tired because <laughs> i woke up at five today you don't do anything right now except stay up excessively late playing video games <laughs> yeah and it makes me tired right so what's changed <laughs> um you know life <laughs> So um, I think one of the things that we could talk about is uh, kind of from a fighter's perspective. Well, how about the fact that he just got his black belt? Well, that's true. Even though we weren't able to do our five-year anniversary, and even though we weren't able to have Caesar Gracie come out and physically hand you your black belt, this is something that's been six months in the making. So uh, what, what did that mean to you when uh, he went ahead and promoted you online via Facebook to the world? Um, I mean, I, I know it has to be a little exciting and yet a little disappointing all at the same time. I mean, yeah, it's got two sides to it. A, getting the black belt is just a life goal. It's, it's exciting in that note. No matter how it happens, it's exciting to accomplish that feat and then have that going forward. Um, it is a little disappointing, though, that it happens the way it happened. Um, that it was kind of a over a video on Facebook instead of being able to be in person and have it happen because of uh, all the stuff going on, you know, COVID-19. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, all that crap. Because, yeah, our, our five-year anniversary was set up to be a huge celebration, uh, pretty much a who's who of jujitsu in the state of Florida. We were going to have a lot of big names, you know, all here to, uh, to, to be with you. You know, so watch you get your black belt, you know, and then unfortunately everything just took a downward spiral. Really sucked. Yeah. I mean, especially considering, you know, like we said, that this thing's been about six months in the making is back in November was when Caesar said he wanted to promote you. And when we talked to him about that, you know, he, we, uh, we talked to him about how we would, we wanted him to come out. So we, we, forecasted into the future, got a date from Caesar, started promoting it almost from day one. And 
and then there it goes. So, I mean, I, I know for me, it, it was a huge moment being able to, to put a black belt around your waist on behalf of Caesar. Um, but, I mean, I, I was looking forward to that day, to being something really cool. Yeah. Yeah. It is what it is. Unfortunately, this is the time that we're having to deal with. Yep. Um, nothing that can really be done about it. So just taking everything as it comes and uh, just trying to make the best of it. So I guess right now, why don't you kind of give us, I know plans have gotten kind of postponed a bit, but um, what your, your plans are pretty much for this year, for your fight career uh, and all that. Well, I think let's, let's, let's go back. Let's go back a little ways. Okay. There, there's a lot of people that, you know, even for us, we've never heard Christian tell his history. That's true. We know his history. We were there. We were. From but, the beginning. But we've never had <laughs> Christian's perspective on what it was like growing up in such an awesome family. Um, <laughs> and then ultimately, what kind of became the catalyst that made him want to fight? Yeah. So growing up. It was tough. I, I know. I heard you had a bitch of a coach. He was a real dick. Growing up at age of two and three, I would walk around the house, crawl sometimes, and get attacked by a stuffed lion. Yep. And be forced to uh, use jujitsu to escape. It was tough. Some people grow up on the mean streets. I grew up on the mean carpets. That's true. That is true. Um, that lion used uh, to move sometimes, seemingly on its own. <laughs> yeah, growing up, it was it was a uh, fun experience growing up and being able to just mess around the house and learn at the same time. And then when we finally joined with Sensei Eric, uh, for me, when I was four, and started actually training in Okinawan Gojira Jiu-Jitsu, it was fun to actually – it was start to go with kids – similar age instead of a stuffed lion but <laughs> it was a good opportunity to come up with a leg up on a lot of the competition starting so young and starting with a family that was in the game and as supportive as they could be compared to maybe getting into it after graduating high school and no one in your family even knowing what you're doing and thinking you're doing karate when you're doing jujitsu. Yeah, yeah. Well, you were doing karate. At one point. But that was besides the point. That was beside the point. Um, and then, you know, from there, started doing some competitions, jujitsu and the like, did some uh, pancreation. It, when was that? Like, I think you were 13. You were either 12 or 13 when you did your pancreation match. I think it was 12 because one of them I fought a kid that was 14 and I remember he was two years older and like 40 pounds heavier just in that one dude's gym with uh, a boxing ring. Yeah. Well, that, that was a, uh, uh, I don't know if that was the dude's gym or not, but I know that they, they use that place as a church um, for different services and the like. That's why like, like it was weird. On one half, there'd be the, uh, the boxing ring and then you turn around and you could see the pew and the front where the, the pastor would stand and everything else. I mean, I'm sure that was a, uh, uh, an interesting church to go to. 
Yeah, that was probably a real interesting church to go to. <laughs> Who's that, Azula or Suki? This is Suki. <laughs> well, she wants to be in on your podcast as well? No, Christian wants her to be in on the podcast. <laughs> she doesn't want anything to do with it. <laughs> but yeah, going from Pancration was fun, and then doing some of the tournaments like uh, Grappler's Quest at the UFC Fan Expo was a blast. And then shortly after that was around the time that you guys moved out to California. Um, so memory-wise, you don't really remember a whole lot of not training. No. I, as far as I can remember, I was doing something, whether it was with the Stuff Lion or with the Sensei Eric or with our gym that we opened in or Valley Springs. And then um, you did veer off briefly and did uh, wrestling. Only briefly. When, uh, so seventh grade started wrestling and – at that time, I was still doing jujitsu and wrestling together, um, just different times. And then from there, got to freshman year, still doing jujitsu while wrestling. Um, the move started to Florida from California. I finished out the remainder of my freshman year in California um, while you guys were in Florida, still wrestling then, not really doing jujitsu because the gym was closed and right. you guys were in Florida. And then we got out to Florida, kind of burned from some past experience with gym owning. So we weren't really looking to start one up. I mean, we were at that time starting to teach out of a different gym just two times a week, I think, where we met Carlos. Yeah, yeah it just didn't work, though. My, my work just became overwhelming. Um, so from there, focus went to peer wrestling. Um, quit footballs, we stopped doing jiu-jitsu and just went to a peer wrestling focus from sophomore to senior year. Well, which was also different for you. I mean, California side, you know, uh, the wrestling group definitely seemed to be more during season. Um, yeah. Once season was over, you know, the everybody just moved on to whatever the next sport was. But everybody just moved on. When you came out to Florida, that wasn't the case. When, when wrestling was over, that really seemed to be your first opportunity to wrestle year-round and, and really go after something. Yeah, it was good. Um, especially our school, we had a good off-season program, and we got, I know, myself and two to three others um, got at least 75 to 80 matches in the off-season just on – traveling to different tournaments like an hour half away two hours away yeah it's almost kind of like a juxtaposition of you growing up because we used to drag you to the tournaments all the time when you were little and then you know you ended up dragging us to the tournaments as you got older yeah a desire to actively want to compete and get better just traveling was a minimum requirement and then uh, uh, I know that's the, the beginnings of your, um, your fighter nickname. That's where you earned the Hollywood. Yeah, so when we moved from California to Florida, um, unfortunately, anytime you tell someone you're from California, their first thought is LA and Hollywood, even though we were like five to six hours away. 
I mean, at least they didn't call you San Fran. (laughs) True. Oh, that was not that bad. (laughs) But I showed up. um, My wrestling coach is from California. uh, Bowen Bacoca had emailed my new wrestling coach in Florida saying that they had a kid coming out from California that was moving in, going to be joining their team. Uh, So when I showed up to one of the first days, which was in the weightlifting room in the offseason, Coach Baker at DeLand looked at me and was like, are you the kid from California? And when I said, yeah, he just yelled, Hollywood. And from then on, there were half the wrestling team that didn't know my actual name, which spread to half the people I met at Deland High School not knowing my actual name. So which, which is interesting, though, because when, when I met, I'm pretty sure it was Baker. When I met him, he ended up going, so why do the kids call him Hollywood? <laughs> I, I, does he even remember that he gave you the nickname? Um, I don't know. Because it was only uh, – I mean, he kept calling me that throughout the years. But I don't know if he remembers that he was the one that started it at that uh, weightlifting session. But Yeah, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure it was, it was Baker. But, I mean, it could have been Roger. I mean that that's possible, but for some reason, I want to say it was it was Coach Baker that that came up to me one day and just asked. And he goes, because I understand you guys live like 400 miles from Hollywood, so why do they call Christian Hollywood? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it was a couple long seasons, <laughs> so <laughs> easy to miss uh, remember some of the details and then um what kind of instigated your um want to become a fighter and actually do this professionally well i mean especially considering you grew up watching me getting my nose broken and bleeding all over the place when when you were barely able to talk i don't remember being all that enthusiastic about pushing you towards the MMA side, even when we had an MMA team, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't discourage you from it, but I certainly didn't, you know, I, I pushed you more on the jujitsu side, you know, and, and you trained with the adults, you know, but, uh, you know, when it came to that, you know, cause I, I remember your first pancreation fight and even other people, when we signed you up for it, looked at you and said, wait, wait, I, I thought you only did jujitsu. And I remember one of our, uh, one of our adults turning to them and went, not anymore. And that kind of freaked a bunch of people out. Um, I don't know exactly a moment that made me decide that I wanted to do MMA, especially professionally. It was just a, a way to use the skills that I've been working on for as long as I can remember to actually make some money and have a chance at competing at the highest levels in both um, jiu-jitsu. Going to worlds, placing a world's winning worlds is cool, but at the same time, you're paying to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of money, too. I mean, wrestling, uh, Olympic wrestlers, unless you get sponsors, it's, it's amateur wrestling. Right. It's, it's not a glorious, you're getting all kinds of money to continue wrestling. You're working your ass off 
And then if you don't have your sponsors and stuff like that, you're not really making anything. But with MMA, you have a chance of using the wrestling, the jiu-jitsu, striking all together and having a chance at really making some money, especially at the higher levels and competing at the highest level against the toughest people for free. Well, I mean, things are definitely different now. I mean, now, I mean, I shit. I get so many messages on a daily basis from vendors in China and Pakistan and even in here in the States, you know, asking about making rash guards or geese or things of that nature. So, I mean, right now it's a, it's a huge explosion of vendors. It's a huge explosion of different groups out there. So even now we would have never thought back in the day, to ever even hear somebody go, hey, I'm sponsored. I'm a sponsored yeah. fighter or I'm a sponsored blue belt competing. <laughs> you know, but now that seems almost comical um, you know, because there, there are so many vendors out there now. Because, I mean, anybody, I mean, you could throw a doodle on a napkin you know, and for about 10 to 15 bucks, get one of the companies overseas to, to make a thousand of them. You know, and, and so now, I mean, that, that's a huge portion of it. So the opportunities are definitely much greater now, especially for guys like you than they ever were, you know, 20 years ago when, when, you know, 20 plus years ago when we started this thing. Yeah, it's definitely, uh, times have changed. Uh, back then you wouldn't imagine amateur fighters getting paid by sponsors to, compete or fight or anything like that if you weren't pro you weren't getting attention not even the pros barely got attention i mean yeah. unless you were unless you were on the, the the big stage which i mean eventually became you know the, the 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 ufc once it became um even viable i mean going back to that time period when it was illegal and Guys like Senator John McCain were trying to shut it down, you know, on pay-per-view, things of that nature. Everybody was running from it. You know, there was no, you know, very, very, very few people were, were even wanting to lend their name to it. Yeah. Do you remember much of those days? I mean, you would have been pretty little. Um, vaguely, it's not a, uh, just, it's not like the most memorable time periods, but I vaguely remember being around the sport when it was a little on the hush. And Do you remember the first fight I took you to? Um, I want to say it was a WEC. Um, to be honest, I have a hard time remembering because it could have been a global knockout at Jackson Rancheria. Um, I, I don't know think knockout was my first, though. I think, I think we did at least the WEC before global knockout. Because I don't remember really going to a global knockout before we started having fighters on it. Right. But I do remember going to WEC before we had any of our fighters actively looking. Yeah, because I remember, you know, way back in those early days, I mean, we got pictures of you on uh, Charles Lewis's shoulders, mask, who from tap out ended up ultimately uh, getting in a car crash. But, I mean, you were pretty, I mean, you were little, little, but you were pretty little in those pictures. Yeah, no, I definitely remember going to WECs a lot um, back when they were at the at Lamar. Yeah, yeah, at the uh, the Tachi Palace. Yeah, I remember those when I was young, going to those, uh, and then 
Jackson Rancheria, like I said, I only remember going when we had fighters on it. Gotcha. Because, um, yeah, I mean, way back then, I mean, we, you know, I took you out there and got a chance to introduce you to a bunch of the people that, that I was meeting, um, you know, including some people that now, I mean, they were pretty influential in the sport, like uh, Jeff Flatnick, um, you know, that uh, unfortunately he's passed away. But, I mean, you, you had a rare opportunity to be able to meet him, you know, from, from some of the uh, – the early UFC, and he was also one of the people that, you know, really helped promote it to get it legal, you know, in, in California and a bunch of the other states. Yeah. Yeah, that was, it was fun going around to the fights. We got to see a lot of uh, some of the UFC fighters really before they were making a huge name for themselves. Um, like, I, I remember at the WC, we would meet a lot of uh, the UFC fighters, like Chuck Liddell would always be there, it seemed, because I swear I saw him multiple times at WECs. One of the times, I think the first time I ever met him, I went up to get an autograph with a little uh, like card that had him on it. Yeah, and yeah, you did. Him and Randy. As I'm walking up to uh, get his autograph, some lady like just runs up out of nowhere, flashes him, and has him sign her uh, her tits. So. <laughs> Little eight-year-old me or something is running up or walking up to get my little card signed, and, uh, get a little extra show before the autograph. You know, <laughs> times were different. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember that. <laughs> no, that was uh, that was at a WEC. I think I went down from the stands because I saw him. Yeah. Um. Well, I know like, the times that, that I, I got the chance to take you with me were more during the winter shows, which are a lot smaller. They would put that tent up that uh, housed a lot less people. So uh, the shows were a lot, lot more uh, intimate in, in that regard, less people. But still, I mean, you know, the, it, it, right there at the Tachi Palace, I mean, that, that was a who's who. You know, we got to meet anybody and everybody, not just meet them, but legitimately hang out, you know, talk to people. That's where uh, we got a chance to, to hang out with John Hackleman for a little bit. Um, I mean, like I said, at the time period, I mean, there were even some up and comers that, uh, that we got well, like, to, to hang with their family and everything before they, they hit the UFC. We met some people there that were like when the ultimate fighter first started and you were getting, you were getting some names coming out of the show. We were meeting them at the WECs because it was one of the events going on. It was, it's not like today where there's events every weekend somewhere. Right, yeah. Uh, it was much more spread out um, and there was only a couple people doing it. Um, so when it came to that. So on the jujitsu side, what, what, what would you say is your best memory? of an event or something of that nature that just stands out in your mind as just one of those days that if you had a chance to, to do it all over again? Um, I would probably say uh, Grappler's Quest at the Fan Expo at UFC 100. That was a really fun tournament, really cool trophy. Um, I wish that the matches wouldn't have been stacked back to back to back. Right. Um, 
where I was the only person in both gi and no gi. So I would get on, grapple in my gi, get off. They'd say, take your gi off, you're the next match. And then jump back on and do that seven times. But other than that, that was probably one of the more fun tournaments because we got to meet uh, Eddie Bravo there. Um, you, you and Eddie Bravo kind of hung out, it seemed like, for probably close to 20-plus minutes. Yeah, it was fun. Uh, we got to talk for a while. Um, I don't think we ever sent him, but he asked for us to yeah, send him. Yeah, unfortunately, we never followed up on that because, I mean, he came up to you, I remember, and he was like, hey, man, I, I see you using some rubber guard. And then that, and that turned into a, a conversation. And then, yeah, he, he gave us his email address and said, send him some videos. Yeah, we never, we never did follow up on that. But we got to, like, I competed against, uh, whose son was it? Pretty sure it was Guy Mesger's son in the finals of, I think it was Nogi. Yeah, that was the last of the seven matches. Right. Or at least that's, that's what people told me. I haven't been able to verify that, but... That's what people told me. And then got to just walk over from that tournament to the expo next door and meet countless amounts of UFC or pride fighters. Well, one of my, one of my favorite memories from the uh, fan expo was when we were walking along. Um, I, I don't know if you had won your tournament yet or not, but we were walking along. We went from the, from the grapplers quest. We went to the fan expo side and we walked by uh, Nick Diaz's booth yeah. and he had a huge line probably you know 80 to 100 people deep and as we walked by we just kind of raised a hand and just was like hey Nick um, and then at that point Nick was like oh man hey guys and so he pulled us over started handing you a whole bunch of swag from the table and it like pissed off everybody in line because he just yeah. stopped and just talked to talked to us for I don't know probably 15 minutes just seemed like everybody in line was getting pissed. Yeah, no, I remember that. So, what? Um, I know you right now. You're you're fighting. You're you're teaching here at Dark Wolf, um, and uh, you're doing some kind of low key managing of the fight team right now that we have. Um, what's your kind of ultimate goals as far as uh, your future? Um, right now, not entirely sure, other than when this passes, I want to get another fight in and continue working my way to the UFC. Um, past that, I'm figuring that out. Just, uh, thoughts have kind of changed from some of the plans I wanted to do, but the main thing for me right now is I'm having a blast coaching wrestling and we've got a good staff that just or is working at the land, um, trying to make sure or trying to make that team grow and progress and then trying to grow Dark Wolf and get our fight team, jiu-jitsu team and everything at a higher level and progressing and just focusing a little more on myself um, for a little bit and just really try to accomplish the first step of the major goal that I've had, which is getting in the UFC. Um, just 
taking a little more focus because it sucks getting to that last step and then tripping back five. Right. And then having COVID come in and make me trip another five. And yeah. Yeah. So that whole scenario was kind of surreal. I mean, the, the, the whole contender series, I mean, such a whirlwind. Cause I know, you know, we were getting ready for origin. Um, so, I mean, that really kind of condensed a whole lot of stuff. And I remember for myself, you know, we finished up origin on Saturday. I was at the airport by Sunday morning, I think at four in the morning or five in the morning or something like that. Something ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, flew out there just in time to be able to catch weigh-ins. Um, and then the next day, you know, was the fight. And then, you know, all the, the, the stuff that happened there, you know, not being able to walk the floor, not being able to, to see the cage ahead of time. Um, first time even seeing the cage was when we walked through the doors on, on TV. Yeah, it was a different experience. Um, walking out without music, no introductions when you get in the cage. It's just, you walk into the cage, they say go, and you're off. And then, uh, it was new having to do my uh, or having to do a uh, drug test right before the fight, where they're having you uh, pee literally right before you get to the locker room, and then not being able to for a little bit and having to drink quite a bit of water. Yeah, that concerning me quite a bit when I was in the back because I started seeing some of the other fighters, and then pretty soon I saw them wrapping up Billy Q's hands, you know, and they kept telling me saying. You know, where, where are you at? That's where you and I were messaging, you know, back and forth. I started talking to other people saying, well, you know, let's start, let's start talking options. I'm like, can I, can I wrap his hands back there before he takes his piss test? Yeah, I don't – that was weird. That was a struggle. Yeah. I was one of the first fighters to go try to take the piss test, but the last fighter finished. Um. And then by the time I got back there, Billy was already warming up for the first fight. I was the third. And shortly after that, he was walking. I think by the time I was done wrapping your hands, he was walking to the cage. Yeah. Yeah, it was an interesting uh, event and everything. Uh, like everything was so quick. When I got in the cage, I remember I was looking around to try to see where Megan was in the stands and where Dana White was just to see where their table was located and everything like that. And while I was looking around, they said, are you ready? Are you ready? Like go. Right. And I remember I never actually saw where Megan and my cousins and everything were sitting. And I never saw where Dana was sitting. Um, even after like I didn't still didn't know I didn't see any of that I was so just everything's happening like let's go it threw me off a little bit yeah um so in your fight prep is there anything you know as far as um 
what you do to kind of mentally prepare, um, what your routine is and all that. I mean, we know, but just to put it out there with the uh, podcast and everything. Um, I mean, during fight camp, I don't know if there's any like real specific thing that I do to help focus. Um, the main thing is just I train, like step up the training a little bit. Like usually during my fight camps, I'll be training two days, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday um, with fusion and then with dark wolf at night. Um, and then Saturdays is like uh, sparring at fusion Sundays is sparring at dark wolf and just getting a lot of the training in and then getting jujitsu and getting the wrestling in like different drills. Um, so with, with training down at fusion with Jacare down there, um, why don't you tell everybody one of you, you told me it was one of your first major introductions to Jacare. It was no gi and you decided to wear a singlet. That was, I don't think that was one of the first times. It was, it was definitely early and when he was starting to go down there. Well, it was definitely uh, early. I remember you, you telling me that you weren't, you weren't quite sure if he liked you yet. Yeah, we had gone, we had rolled a couple times, but still wasn't quite sure. Um, and I was wearing a singlet to one of the training sessions because all my other clothes were dirty. Well, I believe uh, it was a specific singlet, though. Oh yeah, it was my Care Bear singlet. It was <laughs> all green with its four leaf clovers and a, care, a big Care Bear on the back. And uh, Julian was like, all right, Jacques Ray, Christian, go. And Jacques Ray looks at me, looks at the singlet and goes, no. <laughs> I mean, we ended up grappling, but he was messing with me for quite a bit that he wouldn't. <laughs> singlet. Well, as I remember, uh, you, you came home and you told me, you go, uh, you said something to the effect of, you're like, I, I think I upset Jacques Array. And then you told me the story about how, you know, he was like, no, no. You know, and then, then it was it was a little bit later that you told me that uh, that he was okay. That uh, he was just joking with you. Yeah, you never know when you meet people that are a little up there in the world of MMA that when you're training with them, you never know what's going to potentially upset them or turn them away. Well, especially at the time period, I think Jacques Ray was still relatively new to the fusion crew as well. Yeah, it was fairly early. It wasn't like the first week or two, I think, but it was definitely in like the first month. Um, so on that note, like, who would you say was one of your more memorable uh, notables that you've been able to roll with? Um, the most memorable and notable was uh, getting to, like, roll and spar with uh, Max Holloway in Hawaii. Nice. Uh, now, that was you were training on your honeymoon with a broken molar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that was... That was fun. Um, on the honeymoon, our hotel wasn't too far from uh, Max's gym. So I would get 
uh, Uber, take it down to Max's gym, or I think Katerina, my cousin, drove me once. Um, but went down, I trained at his gym, I think, three times while I was down there. Uh, some during the week, and one was just their like fight team sparring session at the uh, end of the week. But it was a blast uh, getting to spar with him. He was real cool. Like sometimes you never know with the uh, people that have a name for themselves already. Like sometimes they'll be not wanting to spar or do anything with someone coming in from a different gym, which is pretty safe. I mean, quite a bit, which is pretty safe, but, um, I went in ahead of time was like, Hey, like, I'm, I've been training a while. I'm this rank. I, I fight like I did this, 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 yada, yada. Is it cool if I pop in the gym and train? I didn't mex- message Max. I messaged the gym owner. Um, and he was like, yeah, it's cool. Come on in. Like, these are our sessions. What are you looking for? Um, and then when I came in the second sparring round, Max was like, Hey, you want to go? And I was like, okay. Like I wasn't going to outwardly ask for it because that would come off. uh, Almost it would come off bad being a guest in the gym and then just trying to ask for sparring with their UFC champ at the time. I mean, but that's, that's also, that's part of your experience having grown up as a martial artist, not a fighter, but as a martial artist, you kind of know the etiquette. We've traveled around enough. You know, you kind of know the etiquette of what it's like. You know, if, if you go in and, and you be that guy, you're going to get your ass beat. You know, yeah. that's, the, that's the old mentality. You go in, you're in somebody else's gym. You don't walk into somebody else's house and just go to the refrigerator and grab what you want. You know, you go into somebody else's house, you be a little respectful. You know, sometimes that means you got to eat a little bit. You know, that, that you got to kind of let them, you know, it's their house. They're going to, you know, and so I think that's part of, Part of the experience that you've got, you know, growing up, kind of knowing what it's like that, that, you know, makes you so personable, you know, especially to, to a bunch of the other people that we, uh, that we've competed against and trained against. Um, but yeah, that was just overall a fun experience. It was a great gym down at Gracie Techniques in Hawaii. Um, real good team of people. Like everyone there was friendly. Everyone there just welcomed me and, uh, I actually got to have like quite a few rounds, some just striking, some MMA, some grappling with like Max and the rest of their team, nice. which was real fun. Um, real, real uh, like exciting to be able to train with at the time the UFC champ one weight class below. So it was quite the experience to do during the honeymoon. And I know you've uh, you've had some opportunities to roll with Kyle Chera. Is he eight times, yeah. nine times? I know, I lost count. IBJJF champion? I thought he went above 10. Yeah, I can't remember. No, I guess I lost count. Yeah, I got to roll with Kyle a lot um, in California when we were towards the like last two years out there. So like 14, um, like 13 to 14 uh, age. And then got to roll with him again twice, I think since when he came out to Florida for different seminars and the like. Um, but yeah, Kyle was, Kyle was good to roll with. Um, Jacques Ray is fun to roll with. Hadolfo is not fun to roll with, but I like <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And now, when I say he's not fun to roll with, I just mean he's... You mean that with all due respect. Yeah, it's um, it's just one of those. When he grabs something, it's not yours anymore. And <laughs> when you put the technique with the power he can produce and the leverage he has, it's a scary thing. Right. But like Hadolfo, Jacare, like uh, Holloway, Kayo, I've rolled with... Julian down at Fusion, who's not um, a very big submission-heavy guy, but the pressure that he puts out from an open guard position on top makes it very difficult to try to move. Uh, then, you got, then you got me. <laughs> yeah, well, very, very tough to get out anytime I get into a bottom half guard situation with you. Uh, well, I remember uh, we were in Florida. We went to a tournament. I think that was the one where – I think that's the tournament you competed against Ruben Alvarez in the, uh, in, the, in the absolute. But then you're, you're in your division, and there's an announcement over the PA looking for a competitor. Uh, it, it's the way we've always competed. You heard it, said, hey, I want matches. So I told you if you want it. So you ran over, told them that you're interested. Then I remember right as the matches, you know, they, they, they call you over and everything else. They call for your coach. So I walk over and they go, hey, um, you know, uh, his opponent, Christian's opponent is this guy over here who weighs about 280 pounds. And, you know, they're like, well, we just want to make sure that, uh, that you're okay with that. And I, I remember looking at them, looking at you, and I go, I'm his training partner. He'll be fine. <laughs> and I think, what, you submitted the guy in like 30 seconds? Yeah. Yeah, because that one was – there was a guy uh, – this was back at Blue Belt. There was a guy that was like 280 that had no one in his bracket. Right, yeah. So they were like, hey, is there anyone willing to step up and jump in the bracket? And then me and another guy that was like 210 or so jumped over and jumped in the bracket. Right. So we had a little three-way competition on top of my other brackets, which I ended up uh, winning, you know. <laughs> um, but, no, that was, that was fun. Uh, he was big, but – Big only cuts it in hand, uh, hand grenades and horseshoes or something like that, I think is the same. I don't know. That was a weird saying. <laughs> <That's a weird laughs> <thing. laughs> All right, so now be honest. Who's got more pressure, me or Hadolfo? Hadolfo. No, there's no way. <laughs> Hadolfo has bruised my chin and made it look like I got punched in the chin from just shoulder pressure. But that's because I'm being nice. <laughs> Hadolfo's pressure is stupid. Like, I, when I say that I literally got a bruise on the tip of my chin from just half guard shoulder pressure that led into a side choke, I, that bruise was there for like a week and a half. <laughs> See, that, that's just because I'm being nice and we've trained for so long together that, that we, we know each other's moves. All right, so what about me, me and Jacare? <laughs> Be honest now, don't hurt their feelings. I mean, if it's pressure, I think your pressure is better. But when it's 
a threat of submission. I think Jacare, the amount of submissions that he can transition between and some of the stuff like he heel hooked and arm barred me in the same move once. <laughs> That's impressive. That's pretty impressive. That's impressive. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Jacare is one, he flows through his submissions really well. He's not one that's just stick you down, hold, and work for something. So I don't know the full extent of pressure from Jacare, but I know his submission, the mind he has for submissions and finding them in transition or just wherever we are, I always feel like something's in danger with Jacare. Not so much, like, with Hadolfo or the like, it's, a pressure and then he slowly gets to the submission and I know it's coming and I just can't stop it. Whereas with Jacare, it's, we'll be just grappling, 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 and then all of a sudden something's caught. But there's more chance for movement when I'm grappling with like Jacare compared to you or Hidalfo uh, or the like. Right, so it sounds like Hidalfo's got a little bit more of my, my style. Much yeah, more normally. Will crush shoulder pressure, and then he will slowly push your arm across, no matter how much you fight it. <laughs> <laughs> and he'll finish, and it's not a size thing. It's just the way he hits his side chokes. He's done it in the UFC to people in his weight class, um, where he just gets that position, and he just slowly works that arm across and you know exactly what he's trying to do with it but your options are let it go there or let it go there right um, yeah. uh, did, would you have like some um, advice for up-and-coming fighters anything that that you would impart to somebody I mean, there's a couple things. A, don't get cocky. Don't, like, uh, especially for amateurs, I think the worst thing that can happen to an amateur is they go undefeated before going pro. I think that's one of the worst things to have because then they go in on top of the world and unless they have some other motivation that's got them making sure they never slack a little bit or they never... Uh, think that they're better than they are going from amateur to pro. It's going to be tough for them sometimes transitioning and dealing with potentially that first loss as a pro and the like. Well, and I think a lot of that has to do with their coaches and the like. Because unfortunately, there's a lot of fighters that like to surround themselves with yes men that always feed the fighter's ego. Because every gym's got a top dog. Every gym does. And unfortunately, there's a whole bunch of yes men that surround that top dog that constantly just, you know, they cater to them. They, they tell them how good they are. They, you know, they, they feed them everything, you know, at that point. So I think even at that point, the, the coaches and, and even, you know, if, I mean, as an amateur, they should never have a, a manager, in my opinion. Um, oh, yeah. But um, there's people that do. Yep. Um, but I think, but that's where the, 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 the fighter themselves. And I think sometimes the fighter, as they get cocky, they go against, they don't want the S men in their life. 
So that's part of their cockiness. So you couldn't get rid of me. <laughs> I was wow. all here. Yeah, so that's one of the things I would say. The other I would probably say is just there's a time and a place for taking the toughest fight out there. Um, there's a lot of fighters that have the mentality of I'll fight anyone, anywhere, anytime. And as an amateur, that's good because you're gaining experience. As a pro, when you're 1-0 and 2-0 and stuff like that, or 0-0, you're not there to fight the toughest dude out there. You're there to start your career and build yourself up before you start taking those fights to make a name for yourself. You're not beating some 15-0 guy as a 1-0 and then all of a sudden getting a shot at a big show. You've got to build your record and everything like that before getting in. Um, like uh, part of the management team at First Round Management, uh, when I was getting ready for some of the fights, like uh, Dean told me, uh, who was working with me on more of the regional level of First Round, he was like, your job as a fighter is to want and say that you're, you, want the, you want whoever's the baddest person in the room. He said, it's my job as a manager to get you the smartest fight in the room. Right. Well, that's a coaches too. Yeah. Um, but he said, just as a fighter, it is your job to outwardly be there saying, I want to fight the toughest people out there. And that it's the coaches and the manager's job to then get the proper fight for the proper time. Well, I'd even go beyond that. I mean, I, I do, I do agree with that. I think it's the, I think it's the fighter's responsibility to always come to the table with that kind of bravado, but at the same time, they got to train with that kind of bravado as well. We see a lot of people that have that kind of fight bravado, but their training bravado does not match. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, where they're, they're training compared to the I'll fight anybody, they're not even in the same room together. Yeah, that's where I do think it's a, it's a special breed of individual that, that actually gets to merge both of those together, where the, the passion, the training, you know, and, you know, everything else are, are at the same level, you know, and all elevated, all high. Yeah. Um, so how was it with Megan when, when you guys started making that transition where, you know, you guys were dating, you were wrestling, things of that nature. Um, you know, what, what was that like when, when you guys first started talking about this path, this, this career choice? Um, I think it was easier talking about it because she was with me through wrestling, uh, because she was with me through two years of wrestling and going to States and then going to nationals uh, for NHSCA senior nationals in Virginia and traveling with us for tournaments and stuff like that, I think made it easier to transition into, Hey, I want to do MMA. Um, because she was around wrestling and seeing the success that I was having in that. Um, 
and also she's not so, like the type of person that's uh, not grossed out or whatever, but not against MMA. Like right. she loves going and watching the fights with us and stuff like that. So it's, it was, I got very lucky getting someone that would be as supportive of this career choice from day one. Um, and now still on that track uh, almost nine years later now. I'm pretty sure other than your contender series fight, she's been in the corner, right? Yeah, she was in the corner for every fight except my amateur debut before we had our gym open and contender. But all the other, um, let's see. I'm pretty sure. All the 12 fights, she was in the corner. Right. Um, so let's start looking to uh, to wrap this up. Um, so of all of your competition experience, wrestling, jujitsu, MMA, any of it, what would you say is probably the craziest experience that you've had out of all of them? The craziest? Um, are you talking like literally crazy or like cool, like Cra crazy, cool. Like I, I, you can't believe that happened crazy as in what the fuck just happened. <laughs> um, a couple of them. One was Gracie open, um, getting groin shotted like eight times in a jiu-jitsu match, poked in the eye and I was with Tong Po. Yeah. <laughs> that was fun. Said no one. <laughs> um, uh, one of them would be like uh, it was a jiu-jitsu match at a Gracie Invitational, I think. Caesar was refing while texting. Um, refs don't text and ref. Yes. That's why um, I think you remember that one. He was texting and I hit an arm bar and the kid tapped. And then Caesar stepped in and was like, time, like because he heard the tap. And then I start letting go of the arm bar and the kid's like, I didn't tap. And Caesar said, go. And I had already started letting go of the arm bar. So the kid, as soon as Caesar said, go, passed, passed the guard and ended up like winning by a point or something like that. Um, but those were all old school. Both of those were old school jujitsu tournaments when you were just matched up based off of height and they would line all the kids up by smallest over there, tallest over there, come to the middle. Yep. Find, find yeah. you. <laughs> Typically yeah. wherever you were. Always the small one in the big side. But um, crazy wrestling. I'd, Um, I mean, when we went to, uh, NHSCA senior nationals, it was real cool. Uh, when we went, my coaches weren't able to make it from the land, but it just so happened. One of my old teammates from Calaveras in Cal uh, California had made it to that nationals. And well, but let, let's also talk about that though. 
because I remember when we were in California and we were packing up all of our mats and everything else that they came over to the house. I think this is where it took place. They came over to the house and we were giving them two of our seven by 14 mats for the Brown family for them to, to have at their house. And I remember at, at some point in time, you told Justin, I'll see you at senior nationals. I think that might've been a thing that happened. It, that was a long time ago. Yeah, that was, that was like our, our farewell. Like I said, I, I'm pretty sure they were taking the mats with them. They just loaded it up on their truck. And at that point in time, I mean, the, the house was getting all packed up. I mean, this was officially getting ready time to, to actually move. And, mm -hmm. and I remember, you know, basically telling them, say, well, you know, because he goes, well, man, I, I really don't want to, I don't really like take the mats. I said, well, let's just look at it this way. You're storing the mats for me. Maybe one day I'll be back to pick them up. And he was like, all right, man, that's cool. And then I remember, because you and Justin that year went further than I believe any other freshman. You guys went to the same level at the state run in California. And, yeah, we made it to Masters. And, and at that point in time, so you guys both made a name for yourself. And I remember as we were getting ready to leave or as they were leaving, I remember you basically telling Justin, you know, hey, I'll see you at Senior Nationals. And then where, where do we see him again? Yeah, we met at Senior Nationals, and I got to get coached again by uh, my coaches from my freshman year in California who came out with him, uh, which was real cool and neat. Like, we went out to uh, get food and stuff like that, and we were hanging out and just catching up with – What kind of bookended your, uh, your wrestling career? I mean, the, the coaches that you started with basically ended up being the coaches that you finished with. Yeah, so that was – Really exciting and fun. Which I remember at that point, they pulled Melissa and I aside and said, holy crap, I forget how much of a heart attack he was. <laughs> yes, that is a truth. <laughs> um, All right, bro. Um, you have anything else? I don't know. Do you have anything else? No. Um, so we'll wrap up the podcast. I do want to talk to you for real briefly once we've kind of wrapped it. So don't go anywhere. But uh, right. thanks for talking to us, Christian. We've been meaning to actually uh, do a family little podcast. We'll, we'll do more down the road as your career develops. We'll get some more in here. And we may have you sit in on some of the others too because we're planning on getting like Caesar on. We're planning on trying to get some of the old school California crew on. Well, and now I know I need to step up my game so that when I go through that series of questions again, <laughs> the, answers are different. the answer will be different. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening. listening. This is your host, David Lowson. And your other host, Melissa Lowson. We really appreciate being able to do this for you guys. We appreciate you giving us a listen. Uh, if you want to uh, follow us, go to uh, Instagram, submission underscore coalition, or give us a like on Facebook, submission coalition. Or uh, if you guys want to throw some donations, it's not like I'm going to turn it away. We're also always looking for sponsors. Just so. PM us at uh, any of our social media outlets. Awesome. Thank you.